Sri Guru Vaishnav Guru Parampara Ki Jai. Oh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm going to speak a little bit and read a little bit from the <clears throat> Bhagavat Purana, otherwise known as Srimad Bhagavatam. It's a very significant uh, text from the Hindu uh, sacred canon. And um, it is really kind of a sequel, if you will, to the, in, in, in a sense, the Bhagavad Gita, which is very famous. It's kind of like like the Bible of Hinduism, if you will, although very different in that um, while the Bible very broadly is more about believing, the Bhagavad Gita is more about the, deals more with the nature of being. Hmm? which is worth believing that we be and to what extent we do is the subject of the Gita extent to which we exist and so knowledge of that and a hint then of the possibilities as to what kind of being what kind of existence we could Experience and that then latter idea potential, if you will, is really the primary subject of uh, the sequel, in a sense. As I say, Srimad Bhagavatam. I'm not speaking of them in terms of how they were written chronologically in order, but uh, one, the Gita, is as a speech by Sri Krishna. And the Bhagavat, the other is, of course, a text that speaks about many of the other activities we call Leela, divine play of Krishna, that's so uh, instructive to us as to, as I say, not only the extent to which we exist, knowledge of that, but the uh, it's, a, it's a great treatise on our potential for loving. As I've often said and we discussed the other night, we are creatures that uh, of being, knowing, and loving. You could be and not know about it, but you could not have a knowing existence without being. You could know and be, know and exist without loving, but you couldn't have a loving existence without knowing and being. So... According to the Bhagavat school, if you will, then being or existence and knowing are subordinate to loving, which is really our potential. So it's a doctrine that speaks about, not about loving to exist, but existing to love, if you will. And that is a wise kind of love that it speaks about, and thereby an enduring kind of uh, existence and a love that is not uh, frustrating. So a brief introduction, at any rate, to the text. And um, I've been going through this with some of our friends and students over the last few months. It's a long book, as some of you know, about 18,000 Sanskrit verses. It was... Um, it's uh, The particular edition that we're studying from 
speaks of various uh, beginnings, if you will, of the book hmm. at, at different times, retelling and in the context of retelling, other stories are told. It's kind of a book of questions and answers, and in the context of the answers, then the story is told, and there are other questions, and it plays out and comes back to the finally answer the original question, another question is asked, and another narrative. So it's a very uh, involving and consuming uh, text that... Um, seems to cover a, a, a large number of subjects, but really only focuses on, on one subject, the potential that we have to uh, live a loving and enduring existence. So he talks directly about that, philosophically, indirectly through various narratives, and in the context of the narratives, so many other things are talked about. We talked about the other night how the world, the, uh, the natural world, is talked about. And it's talked about, of course, very poetically, and uh, in, a, in a way that uh, really brings nature much more to life, if you will, than a, a, a description of nature based on like a language of math, for example. A descriptive language that lends itself to kind of facilitating controlling, whereas poetry, as I've said before, is a little harder to control. And indeed, it it seems to seek to expand uh, the nature of things and uh, speak about the more that life seems to be, and so forth. So that this whole text is a kavya. It's in a, it's a Sanskrit text that's amongst the. Um, it's a Ras Shastra, it's a, it's, a, it's a poetic book, but a very, of course, profound uh, uh, and uh, well, deeply meaningful uh, poetry. So it speaks about the natural world in a poet, poetic way, and uh, I think it's a more really personally accurate way to, to describe the world. I was down at the, uh, the field of our... Enterprise Save Organics there the other day looking at the um, local wisdom of pumping water out of the uh, out of the creek to irrigate, which might not be the county's wisdom, but uh, it seems to be the local wisdom. So we're we're going with that. You want to fit in, and of course it's less expensive <laughs> also than doing well, but. Um, but Chidahari uh, Prabhu had put some sandbags up, and uh, to dam the well so that we could get a bit of a bit of a lake there for pumping out of. And of course, he came back in a few minutes, and much to his surprise, the sandbags had washed down the creek. And it's just a small creek, creek if you will. Um, and a good neighbor gave him some advice how to how to, how to uh, fortify those sandbags against the force of the water. So I was looking at the water and I was thinking of the power of water and so forth and how the rishis, the sages of yore, um, who will we hear about in these texts, would think about nature, in this example, the nature of the power, the water and its power and force, and they would posit, if you will, a, 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 a goddess or a god of the water. Hmm? Um, and um, you know, in our modern day, people would probably think, well, yeah, they they made up these gods and goddesses, and then 
so many superstitions and it's good we're dealing with all that and we really know what water is, H2O and so on and so forth. That's a, that's a very... Um, Oh, it's a very um, unappealing way to me of thinking about water. And I don't think that the positing, if you will, of a goddess from a meditative mind, we were talking about that the other day, if you will, a mind of a rishi that is not splayed out and uh, uh, attached to uh, things that won't endure, things that are here today and gone tomorrow and so forth. Hmm? The rishis, they, they saw the world, they posited cyclical time because they saw everything is moving around something that's standing still and it's me. Hmm? I am the conscious observer of the ever-changing material phenomena that comes and goes like in in circles. Hmm? There's something to this idea of cyclical time. And so, it was with a meditative mind, if you will, observing nature. They looked to, into nature. Here we are. We're human beings. What time do we live in? You know, it's not like we live in the 21st century, per se, in the way I'm talking about it, but we live in human time, as I said before. This is an auspicious time. This is the time when nature wakes up to the fact that it has a that it can think about itself that's extraordinary and so to think about itself and to think deeply if we look deeply into nature really with the an, an interest in finding a, our place if you will we find ourselves in a sense at the center a humble center hmm? of consciousness around which the world moves, but a humble one in that it's, we're a small kind of unit of consciousness that's prone to forgetting about itself, its position. Hmm? Like the person who turned on the TV and got lost in the TV, something that forgot that it had a life of its own. Hmm? So texts like this, gatherings like this, are, are meant to help us kind of turn off the TV if you will, and the distraction of looking at nature with a view to take from nature, exploit from nature, and build an identity based on attachments to things that don't endure. This is obviously not an enduring identity. If our identity, if our I is based on a sense of my, and nothing is really ours, then what kind of identity is that? That will not endure. So anyway, the rishis, they, uh, they thought deeply and looked into nature with a view, w with a sense that it is I that am observing nature. Hmm? I am significant. Nature too, let me look into nature in such a way as to shed light more upon myself. What am I? Hmm? The, uh, the experiencer, the perceiver, and so forth. And in the context of doing so, as I say, they spoke more, they spoke poetically about nature, the objective world, with a concern to, and an interest in plumbing the depths of the subjective world of consciousness. What is that? The feeling. And, um, and so, 
in the text of the Bhagavad, also nature is talked about. Gods and goddesses are posited. God of the mountain, of the river, and so on and so forth. Um, this would be dismissed to a large extent by the modern mind, but it's worth reflecting um, on the idea that the the vision of such, the positing of such figures and consciousness behind matter, if you will, was arose not really in the, in the Hindu context out of a meditative mind. This is a very different mind than um, than well minds that most of us have, and it, uh, it arguably affords us a deeper understanding of the nature of things, and a poetic one, one that tells us the world is beyond really um, our ability to control and to know, and it will reveal itself to us, reality, on its own terms, and we would best approach the world with, uh, just like it said, I think it was Grover Cleveland, if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. This is the idea. Not to control it and exploit it for my small-minded purpose, but to think I'm part of a bigger purpose. Let me approach nature in a loving way. So this is how nature is spoke about in the book, and we find ourselves today in the seventh chapter of the first canto. There are 12 cantos, or 12 books, as I said, 18,000 verses. And here we find the Rishi Sonaka, Shonaka is asking a question on behalf of many sages who were gathered to one, to Sutta Goswami, who's telling a story. He told the story of how Narada, the Rishi, met Vyas, the legendary compiler of all the sacred Hindu texts, at a time when Vyas was not satisfied with his work. And Narada appeared as his guru, when the necessity arises, hmm, then the solution is at hand. Pujapatrita Marsh, my Sikshu Guru, used to say that if a young boy is hungry, that's a good sign. That's a sign of health. So some appetite, if I think I'm full, I'm satisfied, there must be something wrong with us. There's never to be, we are never to be filled up. Hmm? Students always, forever. We may look from one side to be a teacher, and we look the other side, we are all, we are students. Such is the nature of the subject. Hmm? So, Shonaka is asking, Sutta is responding, he speaks about Narada. Narada came on the scene of Vyasa's despondency. He had compiled so many literatures, but Narada came and said, the reason you're satisfied is because you have not spoken about bhakti or love, hmm? kind of a wise love, in a way that will be readily uh, understandable hmm? as the means and the goal of life. Hmm? So this book is a doctrine of love. It's a metaphysic, if you will, and we, we, it comes up here in this section. Um, that supports a, an, an ideal of the of the of pursuing the, the loving potential of the self of the, of the atma, the soul of consciousness, not just to be, just to exist. Now we're threatened. It appears with non-existence. At any moment, we 
our sense of existence may be taken away from us. Hmm? So it would be profound and wonderful if we could um, realize the extent to which we exist and know that despite what might happen, what might come to pass, we, we, uh, uh, we will continue on to realize that, to experience that in the context of the very passing of the transient and conventional sense of self, North Carolinan, you know, American, Indian man, woman, and so forth. All these things will come and go. So to be aware of that, this is really some a, a, a profound sense of security that I exist. If we knew, realized, understood the extent to which we exist, that, exist, that would be the end of all fear. But as I was saying earlier, and reiterating to some extent now, existing is one thing, but uh, but but what kind of existence? Yeah, an enduring existence, an eternal existence, but. The Bhagavad is saying a loving existence beyond that. This is this is significant because if we are if ananda, the bliss, the loving capacity of the self, is to be the guiding force, the guiding influence, if you will, then uh, there has to be a significant other. Hmm? I could I could exist. There could just be one soul, if you will, one one intelligence to existence, non-local, that takes a local position temporarily in a form it, or, it, embodied in a particular shape. And we could say, and some philosophers do, and some Vedantas and Yogins do, that you take away the shapes and there's one consciousness only. Hmm? And that's a neat idea, and there's some truth to that. But uh, Bhagavad wants it to go a little further hmm, from there. And say there's a unity that we all have. There's something we all have in common. We are all consciousness. That's a fact. Hmm? But because ananda, we, we, we sat chit ananda. So sat means to exist, chit means to know, and ananda means really to love. So if, if ananda is really the guiding force, and it is in this life, then we, we shouldn't be satisfied just knowing that we exist. And again, if Ananda is, or love, is to be played out fully, and love is really kind of evaluated on a scale of reciprocal dealings, the measure to which there is reciprocation, communication, a giving, hmm, to which I accept your desires as mine, you accept my desires as yours. This is an exchange, there's a unity in love, but there it's a dynamic unity. It's like in music, it's not just one note, um, but many notes playing the same tune. That's a harmony. Hmm? So I want to say there has to be a significant consciousness other. Not a, Here there are others, so materially speaking, but these are here today and gone tomorrow, as I said. So if we enter into the realm of consciousness and we're to pursue our ananda, this, this elemental constituent of the self, then we have to do so in relation to a significant other that we will become one with, like you and I become we. Well, that's different. I mean, it's one, but it's kind of different at the same time. It's unity and a diversity, something like that. So this is what comes up here. 
in this text, uh, tonight's text, early on in the, the text of the overall book. And the, the, a metaphysical foundation is, is laid in the text for a, a, a yogic, if you will, uh, pursuit that ends in uh, not only self-realization, but love, love of God, God-realization. So, again, Shona Gubacha, Shonaka says, he says, Nirgate Narade Sutta, Bhagavan Badarayanaha, Shutvam Stam Abhipretyam Tatakyam Akarod Bibhu. So, Sonaka asked of Sutta, on behalf of the other sages there, that, uh, O Sutta, the great and transcendentally spiritually powerful Vyas, he's described here as Bhagavan Badarayana. Hmm? Bhagavan means he was, Vyas was of a divine uh, nature. Hmm? He had transcended the carnal, the animal, the animal side, his animality, and exercised his humanity to such a, such a measure that humanity being, again, the sense that we exist that hasn't arisen yet in other in 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 in, in uh, less complex forms of life to the same extent so to pursue that then one that this is what i mean by humanity it's i don't mean like a two-legged animal that you meet sometimes but um but some but a thinking person and thinking about what's worth thinking about which is what am i why am i these are the human questions Sometimes we just ignore them, and then we're more or less a glorified animal, which isn't a bad thing, but it could be dangerous. Um, and an intelligent animal could be could put us in jeopardy. So, <clears throat> so he says anyway. Bhagavan Badrayana, this Vyas was very uh, divine and uh, transcendental person. He was. Uh, and Nard came, told him his life story, from which so many instructions were drawn. Shutvams tad abhipretyam tatakim akarod He says, so what happened next, basically, he says. Hmm? After Nard left, Nard came, told Vyas what was wrong, what with his writing, what he needed to do to uh, fulfill his, uh, his purpose, what kind of text he would have to compile, and how he would... How he would uh, was to go about that, and 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 Nard told him, gave him philosophical instructions, and then he instructed him again by way of telling his own life story. The instructions he gave him in a nar- in, in a in an abstract kind of philosophical dis- philosophical discourse, he again gave in the form of a narrative, and the narrative of his own life story and how he became the great sage Narda. Fascinating uh, story and an interesting in and of itself. And as I say, the same lessons that he gave in an abstract way, he gave in a very, uh, in a way that was more readily, uh, easy to, well, e- more easy to pay attention to. Hmm? And so, the point here is that uh, Sonaka is on the edge of his seat. He, what happened next? Nard came. He said these things, and and he left. What did Vyas do? Hmm? So. Sutta Vajra Sutta responds, he says, Brahmanadyam 
saraswatyam ashrama paschimetate samya prasha iti prokta rishinam satravardhanaha. He says, Brahmanadyam saraswatyam. This is, uh, he says, the, the, next to the great uh, river Saraswati. Saraswati is a mystical uh, river of India that is said to have um, existed as a, you know, in a physical sense. And it's described in many, many ancient texts, but it can't be found today. Hmm? The way it's described here is interesting because it's uh, described as Brahmanadyam. Saraswatyam. So the Saraswati, Brahmanadyam also means like a river of knowledge, hmm? a river of, uh, of, 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 of wisdom, of divine sound and so forth. So it's kind of getting to the heart of what this is about. Vyas is sitting along the banks of the Saraswati. He is in the flow, if you will. Hmm? He enters the flow of divine wisdom. He's going to go into meditation as he was instructed by Narada. This flow, incidentally, from what we're hearing here, is the source, the, the history of the book. The book is still in the early chapters, and it's been describing its own history and how Vyas came to write it. So it's an after writing, if you will, from the time that Vyas actually brought it to, 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 to light in the first place. And. Um, of course, it's the story of God, so it's, you know, <laughs> it's ongoing. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, uh, here he, he, he's sitting in his ashram. He, this is the, the inception of the book by the, at the, from the pen of Vyas. And it's taking place in the Himalayas, as we'll hear. And next to the, on the bank... Hmm? on the bank of the of the Saraswati. And this river, the Saraswati, it flows from up in Badrinath, the Himalayas, down to the Bay of Bengal, is the idea. Hmm? Um, there it enters into the, uh, into the uh, Indian Ocean. And the beginning, the inception hmm, of the river of knowledge and, the, and, the, and its Emptying, emptying into the Bay of Bengal, are both significant. Its source and then its kind of its kind of distribution. So, follow this is a beautiful idea. Some of you will be more familiar with this than others. The book Bhagavatam is about the life of Krishna, Radha, and Krishna. This divine play, divine leela. And if we look deeply inside that leela, what do we find? If we look the teaching is, if you look at Krishna very closely, so many things, as, as described through the ears of the sacred texts and so forth, you see something very extraordinary. You see a theological person, hmm? a philosophical uh, person, and a, a meditative person whom you can enter into an, an experiential uh, relationship with and so forth. Um, and is a, a generating source hmm, of shakti, of energy. So uh, when we look closely at Krishna, then we see Radha. Oh. Hmm. And as I said before, sometimes people say, well, if God created the world, who created God? Where did God come from? We say, well, 
where did Krishna come from? We say from Radha. Where did Radha come from? From Krishna. So <laughs> the idea is that that that, uh, that this is the Beda Ved, the doctrine, metaphysic that's coming here. Hmm? That love of God and God are one and the same. Love. God is the object for which love of God, which corresponds with love of God. So if you look closely in which at Krishna, you find Radha's there also. And you look closer. This will come, we'll talk about this on Sunday. You look closer, what do you find? You find Chaitanya. Hmm? Radha Krishna, hmm? Sri Krishna Chaitanya, Radha Krishna Nahi Anya. Hmm? So this is another Leela, another day in the life of Bhagavan, the avatar of Chaitanya, the combined form of Radha and Krishna. Krishna wondering how the personification of love, Radha, ex- what is her experience of me? I would like to experience that. This is God wanting to experience the pers- himself from the perspective of the devotee, thinking, that's a, that's a vantage point that I don't have, and, and I would like to experience that. Hmm? So this gives birth, if you will, in eternity to the idea, the concept of Sri Chaitanya. And Sri Chaitanya appeared in West Bengal, at the, where the Saraswati and the Ganga enter into the, enter into the ocean. And there we find great distribution of this idea, this Bhagavad idea. So if you and if you look deeply into Krishna Lila, when Krishna is in the in the in the in the forest in the in the autumn full moon night meeting with his his consort Radha secretly and so forth, they're consummating their divine relationship, and this is where Krishna looks at her and 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 and, and thinks. I'm I'm the transcendental Cupid, and uh, I mean I am love, uh, the perfect object of love. But I don't know myself as well as she knows me. What 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 is her experience? As I said, and so he wants to taste that. This then, deep in the leela of Krishna, we find Chaitanya. Hmm. Hmm. Some of you are more familiar with the idea. So here we have it at the, at the, in the Himalayas. Vyasa sitting. Hmm. Next to the Saraswati. That Saraswati is found in Bengal in the form of the Jalangi between Godrum and, uh, and Mayapur. Hmm? <laughs> and there we find the Bhagawan, the Bhagawan Badarayana, he's described here, Vyas. There we find the, the Vyas of Chaitanya Leela, Vrindabandas, hmm? writing the Chaitanya Bhagavad. It means the book is continuing to go on. Again, it's about the life of Krishna. So this is the inner life of Krishna, Chaitanya. So there's a connection between the Bay of Bengal and Jalangi, or the Saraswati's representation in Bengal, and where there's, and with that, with the distribution that Nadia is, that place is said to be about, hmm? a place of divine love that 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 tends to overflow and distribute itself. Audarya, the reaching within that causes one to reach out, and so forth. And so all of the secrets of the ashram of Vyas and so where he's writing, it's all coming out to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So he says anyway that uh, that uh, ashram paschimetate. So he's at his ashram in his ashram on Tate on the bank of the Saraswati Paschime, on the western side. And this is of course goes to West Bengal, and from west it comes uh, east or. Uh, Something like that. <laughs> East it comes west, but 
Paschimetate, Paschi, Paschit, what did he say? Paschachadeshatarine. Namaste, Saraswati Devi, Gauravani Pracharane, Nibhisesha Sunyavari, Paschachadeshatarine. So, some prashna was the name of that place, Iti Prokta, Vishinam Satravardhana. And it had a, it was a, it was a, of a nourishing nature, the very place. Hmm. I was going to describe that place in a little more detail. And it's, it, it, makes, it brings up some good points. Tasmin swa ashrame vyaso badri shanda mandite asino pa upasprisha pranidhatyo manaswayam. He describes the place. says, Tasmin swa ashrame vyaso vyas there in his own ashram, hmm, his own monastery in the Himalayas on the banks of the Saraswati, Badri Sandamandite. This is Badri, Badrinath. Hmm? It's a very beautiful place, high in the Himalayas. And um, Badrinath is, is one of seven Vishnu temples, the primary of seven Badri temples. Badri this, Badri that, and so forth. This is Badrinath, high in the Himalaya. And... Um, it's a really beautiful place. It, it's very high, and and, uh, and there's very hot, uh, natural hot streams there that uh, connect with the bank, with, with, with the Ganges. Hmm? And uh, now you can go to Badrinath, but the place of Vyas is said to be up a little little further from where the main temple is, right near the China border. Hmm? They don't let you go there because of the Indians' uh, political relationship with the Chinese. And then, 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 then the the, uh, the spiritualists say you can't go there anyway. Hmm. They have to go there in a different way, not by foot, something like that. But 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 Badrinath, we're very close to there. I've been there, and uh, here it says Badrishandamanite. It's the Badri is its name. Badri means berries, actually. And this is it's a place of berries. It's a, it's, a, it's a there's a forest of berries there where he. Reside. I think it's like the the, the jujube berry, or maybe the goju, which has become popular now. It also comes from the Himalayas. Badri Shanda Mandite Asino Pa Upasprisha. So he sat there in the forest of berries on the bank of the Saraswati. He touched the water. This is a like it means he engaged in the ritual of ashram, t- touching the water chanting certain mantras for purification. And then, Pranidhatyu Manaswayam, he took his mind, hmm, and he, uh, well, he concentrated it. One of the points I want to make here is that um, that we can see from this brief description that Vyas chose a, a place for his meditation that was conducive. That's kind of why we're here also. When we purchase some property, and some of you are participating, living nearby, and so forth, and look forward to um, taking part in whatever comes of it here, um, because you want an auspicious place to uh, uh, pursue your spiritual practice. Somebody asked me the other day, um, sent me a message, and said, "I have lived in a very you know, I, she was telling me, she said, I live in a difficult situation. I'm, you know, it's hard to tolerate and so forth. And 
I was thinking of coming out and visiting your place, but you know, I I also know that according to the spiritual teachings, one has to exercise some tolerance in the world. So I don't want to like run away necessarily either. So sometimes we're we may meet with this kind of dilemma. Hmm? I said to her, "Yes, you are to tolerate. That's true." And the Gita says, "What?" They will be cold, they will be hot. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, and what may be hot for you may be cold for me. <laughs> and vice versa, what may be good for you may be bad for me. So we have to tolerate, and we have to tolerate one another. What, what is your hot? Maybe my cold. We maybe we meet in the middle here, or something like that, and turn the heat a little bit up or a little bit down. Hmm? But this, the Gita says, it's all arising out of the mind. The senses are perceiving. The mind is saying, this is hot, this is cold, and and a world is being created of my hots, my colds, my goods, my bads, my happies, my sads. And the problem is that they're my happies, my sads, and you have your happies and your sads. And so, to one extent or another, we're at odds with one another. And these perceptions of happy, sad, good, and bad are all just a product of the mind's mind making determinations out of impressions gathered by the senses. I mean, is it hot or is it cold? This is just a perception, a filter through which we're perceiving the nature of of the of, of being. Hmm? And this filter, if you will, the body made of senses, it will change. So. Well, so the teaching is not to be too attached to those perceptions, but to find, but to understand what what whence they are, from whence they arise, and tolerate them in pursuit of pursuing, in a deeper sense, the nature of being that, uh, by direct experience through meditation, that involves controlling the mind and the senses, and drawing that focus within. Hmm? Um, so. Well, good enough. Um, we should tolerate. <laughs> and some measure of tolerance is required, but I told her that's true. But it's also mentioned in the sacred texts that we should find association that's favorable, an environment that's favorable for our practice. We're not told to go meditate in hell. Hmm? I mean, you know, then... <laughs> and so there's some room for finding... Uh, Good company, a good environment, and that means, according to the Rupa Goswami, said, "What does he say?" Um, Sneha, he says, it should be affectionate. We should find affectionate company. This, I mean, this is really the bottom line, isn't it? Because it doesn't matter so much, as I said many times, what we have or what our facility is, but how much we're loved and how much we are loving, this is really what the quality of our being. Hmm? We could live in the hollow of a tree if it was with somebody we loved. Hmm? We need a bigger house <laughs> for, for more room, to have room. <laughs> uh, but uh, So anyway, this is the whole idea of what the Bhagavad speaks of because uh, you talk about Leela of Krishna, it looks kind of small in a sense. If I say formless realities and like really big and spacious, but but what's the measure of affection you can find in there if there's no other 
just one. So there's another, it starts to become smaller, but it becomes big in a more in a qualitative way. There's potential for loving and exchange. So, so anyway, Rupa Goswami says, find affectionate association. Hmm? And uh, what is the other term he uses? Sneha? And um, anyway, um, it means, uh, Bruno's. No, no. Uh, it's, it means like mindedness. Oh, Swajatiya. Sneha, snigdasya, swajatiya. Swajatiya. Swajatiya means like minded persons. People interested in a general sense, in, for example, in spiritual pursuit, and in the context of how spiritual life has come to you. Hmm? That kind of sangha, that kind of association, it'll be very nourishing. So we should tolerate in the context of that, and even that will be have cause for tolerating. Hmm? But we don't have to tolerate unnecessarily. Hmm? And, uh, and and even in the even in the context of of like-minded persons uh, who are affectionate and so forth, then still there will be circles within that also where we will thrive more and so forth. Hmm? So, as we and as we progress in spiritual life, there will be in in bhakti, we will start to experience um, e- emotions arising out of the meditative mind, hmm? not out of the uncontrolled mind, emotions of a spiritual nature, hmm? and for, for loving the Godhead in a partic- in a particular sentiment, like a friend, like a lover, something like this, and so those who, whose emotional spiritual life is budding and blossoming and bearing fruit in the same way, their association, that will be most helpful for me as well. So it, it, in, in, on, a, on, a, on a scale, so to speak, we can find the meeting points and evaluate then how affectionate, how swajetia, how like-minded association is and how much thereby we'll thrive. So we should seek that. This is as much the teaching as you should tolerate. Hmm? So don't... <laughs> One fellow once told me, he said, you know, I, I, I left a particular mission, as some of you know, at one point. And he said, you know, if you'd come back, and I know, this, you know it's not very good, but you know, you, you'd get a chance to tolerate so many things. I said, I don't have to look for a, a situation to tolerate. I've got plenty of things to tolerate. And I have to go look for one, throw myself in, you know. I'm following the other idea. You find good association in the context of that, you tolerate as much as much as uh, is, is is necessary. So, anyway, this is a nice introduction to uh, first the really significant now verse of the uh, of the chapter. And I say significant because here in this chapter we find the what will seem to you as I say it a very common sense um, idea. The idea of how to understand this whole text of 18,000 verses. Because here we find that Vyas was instructed a couple of chapters back by Narada to you should enter into Samadhi. Samadhi Nanusmrata Bhicheshtitam. He articulated him, he delineated the qualifications of Vyas and said, You qualified, you can enter into Samadhi. And this, this, this meditate. Uh, and in, 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 in out of this meditation hmm, will come the the basha, the language, samadhi basha, a language of trance that will constitute the book 
Bhagavatam that will be the, the, the kind of the, the culmination of all of your um, writing. This will be the, 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 the final word. Will, you, in this text you will express the, your most complete realization and in the context of doing so you will make it clear and know in certain terms that bhakti or that the path of love is, is the par excellence uh, path. It's the goal, it's the means at the same time it's, uh, as, a, as opposed to a karmic uh, path, the path of karma or the path of knowledge, the path of love. Hmm? So without going into the details of all those three, again, here he's going to come out with what he, uh, Sudha Goswami is going to describe what Vyas experienced, in brief, in his meditation. And so if you know what he experienced in his meditation, then you know, the, you kind of got the hub around which the whole book orbits. So if a statement is made over here, many verses, many cantos later, and you think it has a particular meaning, you want to check it with this, what's, what's, what's found here, and then you can, oh, then you, basically, you know, you can understand language in different, different ways with different meanings in Sanskrit, of course. In particular, it's very, very nuanced language. So... The context, in the words. Here's the context. And this is a very, uh, it seems very simple. Well, right. If somewhere in the book, the author speaks about the experience that he or she had that gave rise to the book, well, you know, then that's how you kind of understand the whole book. But no one, this book's been around a long time, and no one before Jiva Goswami, about 500 years ago, a, a prominent um, sadhu, saint in our lineage, uh, pointed this out, wrote about the text in this way, and gave us the hub around which the book uh, orbits. And this hub is a, a kind of a, to say it another way, a canvas, if you will, a philosophical, metaphysical canvas on which the whole um, of the leela of Krishna that the book uh, speaks about is drawn. So we want to say that, you know, that Krishna with the cows and the milkmaidens and so forth and so it's kind of deep actually. <laughs> the canvas on which it's drawn is, is, is coming out of Vyasa's samadhi and it's a particular um, school, if you will, or form of Vedanta. In brief, it, well, in, in Sanskrit it's called Achintya Bed Abed. Bed Abed. It's a unity and diversity. So it's a kind of a unity that um, gives rise to a diversity that doesn't compromise the unity. Now we have a diversity that tends to compromise the unity, the diversity of your mind and my mind, and your hot and my cold, and so forth. So to rise, to rise above that to the common, what we have in common ultimately, that we are all units of consciousness, and then within that, pursuing what that means, the world of consciousness and so forth, differences arise. Hmm? In other words, the, perce the, the perceiving of the center from a slightly different angle and the reciprocation from the center, hmm? slightly different. This all becomes very beautiful. I've given an example before that if you take, if you, let's say you approach a beautiful uh, lake, it's very calm, it's very calming to the mind, then if you throw a stone in, another stone, another stone, and, 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 
on your mind, get agitated. But if you can throw one, two, three, four, five, 108 stones all in the exact same place, then the concentric ripples or waves will go out and it'll be very beautiful. So there can be many if they're all properly centered. There can be a diversity hmm, in the context of unity, a diversity that ornaments the unity rather than compromising the unity. Now we have a diversity that tends to compromise the uh, unity. And we all sense as human beings that reality must be about unity and it must be about diversity also at the same time. So this is a metaphysic of unity and diversity and therefore I want to say that it, it is, is one that um, on which an eternal life of love can actually be played out. Because if it is a a canvas of unity alone, then the um, the nuances of loving exchange and so forth will have have no have no ground to to stand on. Hmm? So that would be a metaphysical canvas of knowledge, retiring the false variety of the world and so forth, bringing a kind of unity by way of doing away with everyone else. I guess that's a unity. <laughs> There's only one. Hmm? I am that one. I mean, it's a profound idea, but here the, this book wants to say, let's look you know, beyond that a little bit. So it says about his trance that, uh, what, it says, Bhakti Jogena Manasi Samyak Pranahite Malay Apashat Purusham Purnam Mayam Chata Dapashrayam says that, we heard in the last verse that he, he he concentrated his mind, right? He 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 studied his mind. Then it says, now how he did it? He said that he did bhakti yoga in In the context of bhakti yoga, yoga means to add yoga to connect to uh, to yoke is what it means. So uh, and. So there are different types of yoga, karma yoga, jnana yoga, ashtanga yoga, this kind of yoga, that kind of... This is, now he said, he did it in bhakti yoga. Bhakti means, it comes from the Sanskrit root uh, budge, which means, but, but to, it means to give and take, is what it means, actually. Hmm. So in the very word itself, you find this uh, idea of unity and difference. Uh, you know, we give in love, and, and the giving is the taking. Hmm. It's a doctrine of only giving. Love is about giving, but there's a getting in the giving. Hmm. So, in the context of bhakti, there, there, there's, it's, it means reciprocal. Hmm. It implies some reciprocal um, relationship with the absolute. Bhakti Jogena Manasi. So, in the context of bhakti, he can he control his mind. And this is a very uh, kind of user friendly way to approach the daunting idea of controlling the mind. I was listening to Sam Harris. Uh, uh, a couple of us were the other day on a video. He's a, a well known, um, well, atheist, uh, and um, he was speaking about mysticism a little bit. He had some questions in the audience about mysticism. And he knows a little bit about mysticism. He explored a little bit in his earlier days, went to India and so forth. He he has a little bit of a like a regard for it. Um, although he wants to 
bring it all down to the to the material. He, he thinks it's an interesting, you know, dimension of consciousness that the mysticist, myst, myst, mystic experiences. But of course, it's we don't acknowledge his metaphysical descriptions of what he's experiencing, that he's transcending death, and so on and so forth. And that's the way he would look at it. Of course, if the meditation, and Mr. Harris would readily agree, brings about, as I said the other night, an ego death, then, then that's if you <laughs> if you if you if you live on beyond the ego death, then really you have transcended death. Hmm? Because what is your identity other than your ego? That I'm an American, I'm a woman, I'm a this, I'm a that. And if you kill that in the yoga context, and you live anyway, <laughs> then you're, and in the in the, and in the context of doing so, you you transcended. You know the, the the lust, attachment, and so on and so forth. Then you're superhuman, at least, if not supernatural. And what is biological death? This is just a change. That's all. This is a small thing that will come about anyway. Ego death is another thing. Then you have to, then you have to pull the trigger yourself on that. Hmm? that that's a make some effort. Hmm? Yeah. If you and if you pull the trigger on that, if you if you actually um, um, kill the ego, then they understand biological death. You know they want to understand. And people like Sam know this. The consciousness of the mystic. From this perspective, the mystic says, no, I think you should understand <laughs> the world of waking consciousness, if you will, hmm? from this side. Who's to say which side it should be is more definitive? Which one should explain the other? Hmm? You understand? <laughs> We're absorbed in a, in a waking state of consciousness, identifying with, uh, with the physical and so forth. And some people, philosophers, will not think we are physical. The mind is the brain and so forth. There's nothing more than just the physical, and it gets pretty pretty dry, and then life is meaning is taken out, value is taken out, and so forth. And um, you know, some people think like this. They think themselves away. The self is an illusion, and it is, there, there's nobody there really, and, and so on and so forth. And then and so then they they come in contact with the mystic's experience, and well, that's different. They want to analyze it from this vantage point, as I say. And validated or invalidated from this? Well, who's to, why? Why should we do that? Why don't we invalidate this side hmm? from that side? It's pretty easy to invalidate. I mean, it's all here today, gone tomorrow. And we we also say, yeah, the, the conventional sense of self, the ego, uh, uh, it's it's not real. It's a real problem. Hmm? But uh, so you know, this is how the experience we we'll look at the world of you know you want to demonstrate what the world is empirically and by observation and so forth this is what the world is like and yeah well that's what you observe the world to be like as I quoted the other day Heisenberg himself said you know we're not really studying nature we're studying humans investigation of nature at this point hmm? so anyway he said uh what did Sam say? He was. Uh, he had, yeah, he was talking about to his to the, the audience who was dismissing mysticism, and he said, "Well, you know, I, we got to be careful if we want to deal with these people. They're a little different than your fundamentalist uh, uh, religious person. You know, he, these people are harder to, 
harder to harder to you know they've got some experience they've got some reasoning and so forth that's so, uh you, you know you, you better be careful he said these are people who go off and they close down the mind and if i was to say to you all here today let's stop for one minute here and just listen to our breath and not think of anything else he said most of you wouldn't be able to do it for one minute without 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 some thought coming and taking you so he said somebody who has you know dedicated the time to be able to sit in a cave for 30 years another guy said you know you hear about these guys that go in the cave for 30 years what do they get out of that you know what, i mean have they brought anything valuable back to human society you know so sam was like well you know i'm i wouldn't be so quick to dismiss him i mean you try you know so try the, try to con- close down the mic this is what meditation is about in a sense hmm? try to close that uh, he admitted not very easy to do so those who have done they speak about that. Why don't we, you know, be good? Let's hear what they say their experience is. We may not be able to validate that subjective experience hmm, from a third party, you know, empiric uh, observation and so forth, but do we have to? Do we live our lives like that anyway? Everything we have to validate? We live on the subjective experience that we exist. Hmm? We get up in the morning because of that, we can't prove it. Hmm? So, here it said, anyway, Vyas, he closed down his mind in the context of bhakti yoga. Hmm? And it's a very friendly yoga because my point was, if you want to sit and control the mind, Sam's idea was, you know, listen to the breath. He, he wants a totally secular meditation, if there's any meditation at all. No religious baggage. or anything. Of course, meditation is very religious light. Oh, we do a little chanting, you know. We wear a robe, some of us, you know. It's pretty... <laughs> But we're not uh, burdened by all types of religious uh, dogma and uh, superstition and so forth. Mm-hmm. Our morals are, what is facilitates my meditation, that's good. What doesn't, that's bad. Mm-hmm. I'll avoid that. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of time to waste here. Mm-hmm. I have a human life. It has value. And my breath should be taken for this. For knowing myself, knowing that I am, to what extent that I am, and what, what possibilities lie in that sense of I am. Not that I am American, I am Indian, I'm a man, but I am. Now, th- go there, and then what, what, what can we find, and what, 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 what am I potentially in, in the realm of consciousness? Hmm? So, to, to get there, this controlling the mind, the senses, this is, you know, the exercise of yoga and so forth. Bhakti is very, very friendly in this regard because, oh, people like to sing, people like to dance, people like... Hmm. Bhakti can employ everything. This is the power. See the, see the power of love. If I love you, then your faults become ornaments. Isn't it? Hmm. This is the power of love. So bhakti, this is, I mean, you think about it anatomically or biologically. We've got a head, we've got arms, we do things, we think things, we've got legs, we, they carry us, that we, we stand on them, we've got a heart. Even if the brain stops, the heart's still going, you're, you're still alive. So This is the center. We're loving beings by nature. So love has the power then in yoga, bhakti yoga, to 
in to uh, to in the context of being in touch with things, which we all ten- have a tendency to do, to have things, to do things, to see things, to hear things, in the context of seeing things, doing things, hearing things, we can be doing yoga at the same time. That's not the case with, for example, Astanga Yoga. It's mentioned in the Gita also. You've got to go sit on a deer skin, not too high, not too low. You've got to be celibate and uh, you know, alone and so on and so forth. All these prerequisites. Bhakti's not like that. This is, we're doing bhakti yoga here. It's an interesting talk, you know. I'm speaking from my heart, and I'm trying to arrange my feelings in a logical order and so forth to address your minds and intellectual faculty and so forth, that you might let something go down into the heart and, 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 and think, yeah, I ought to do that. That would be good. I make a change in your life and so forth. Um, we, you know, it was nice music you were playing and, and, and chanting. Hmm? So we like to hear music. You can hear music and be doing yoga at the same time. I think, Bhakti Rasa, you cooked something in a particular yoga context, right? So after that, we have some refreshment as yoga. So we like to taste, we like to eat, we like to um, discuss philosophy maybe and so forth. So all this is, becomes yoga. So it's a very user-friendly yoga. I'm not asking you, for example, sit here and just listen to your breath for the next eon. Hmm? You know, let <laughs> us speak of a minute. You've got to go for a long time, something like that. So it's very powerful. And it says here that he was very successful. It says, Samyak pranahite amale. Samyak. You've heard the word sankirtan. Samyak kirtanam. We do kirtan. Kirtan is like Sacred, sacred song, hmm? and samyak, from which the word, well, samkirtan comes from, it means like comprehensive, complete. Hmm? Samyak pranahite amale. Samyak pranahite pranahite means like, without moving. He arrested his mind. It was arrested. It could not budge. In bhakti yoga, we have the story of Krishna, with his milk maidens and so forth. Hmm? And Krishna, at a certain point in the, in the Leela, in the divine play, he leaves their company, right? They're so absorbed in him, hmm? he leaves, and then they try to get him off their mind. They say, Damn that Krishna. Hmm? He's ruining our lives. He's gone. We can't, we can't think of anything else. We can't even carry on our ordinary duties. We should stop thinking about him. And of course, as they talk about it, the more they talk about him. The yogi is trying to fix the mind on Krishna, you know, the, 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 the divinity, with great effort. They're trying to get Krishna off of their minds. Hmm? The implication is that a, a yoga of love has great power to arrest the mind readily, more easily, and comprehensively. Hmm? It's one thing if I could take all my bad karma and put it and dig a hole and put it in there and then grow something on top of it, grow some berries on top, you know. But, you know, it's possible it could come back up again. <laughs> we could get a flood or something or some weed, the weeds could come up like now, you know, we're doing the garden and I'm thinking all these weeds, or this is like all this grass, right? It's like, uh, you know, bad karma. <laughs> so, well, you know, it's get it's nature, but it's getting in the way of the growing of what we want to grow there. So if we just turn it in to the ground, it'll come up again. It'll come up again. 
So we're sifting it out and pulling out. We're putting it somewhere else. It's nature, but we want to just, you know, adjust it slightly. Move it over here. Grow over there. And so if you were to dig, big, big, dig a big hole and throw all your karma in there, you know, that's one idea. And then cover it with some berries. But bhakti means like you dig a hole, throw the karma, and then you build a temple on top of it. It's never coming up again. And you dance in the temple on top of that karma. It's over. It has no possibility of coming up. So he, the language here in the text wants to speak about the power of bhakti yoga. He said he concentrated his mind. Now it says how he did it. Bhakti yoga in manasi samyak pranahite amale. His mind it couldn't budge. It it, it is said by Rupa Goswami. And I I think I cited this the other day. These two syllables, Krishna, they have great power in them. Hmm? Rupa Goswami said, when I sing these syllables properly, what happens is they start to dance in the courtyard of my heart and my senses become inert. They cannot go out towards things. They're drawn into this uh, happening. Hmm? And then I find I have a problem. I cannot do justice to the two syllables with one tongue and two ears. I need thousands of ears and thousands of tongues to do justice to this. Hmm? So, he's saying here, Sutta Goswami is saying, Samyak Pranite Amale, his mind was completely controlled by Bhakti and Amale. Amale means it was spotless. It was completely pure. There was no no, no tinge of any, any uh, uh, desire in his mind. Hmm? And so what happened? Hmm? He says, he got a vision in his meditation. Apashat purusham purnam mayam chaturapashrayam. Apashat purusham purnam. He says, apashat means see. He saw. This is darshan. Darshan is a Sanskrit word means to, to see, to have darshan. But it means also to be seen. So actually he's being seen by the by Krishna. And so if God wants us to know about God, then we can know. Otherwise it will be difficult. If the infinite wants to reveal himself to the finite, the finite can know. Otherwise difficult, if possible at all. So he made himself available. He showed himself to Vyas. And and how did he show himself? He's practicing bhakti yoga, so not in any small way, because he's approaching Krishna not for good karma, that my crop will, you know, bear this year. Please give me my daily bread. You know, I mean, that's not a bad idea, but he's not asking for that. He's not asking even for eternity. Give me salvation. He says, I love you. I said, well, come on in, <laughs> you know. This guy wants this and they want that. Okay, take it, take it, take it. Hmm? This guy wants eternal life. Go there. Hmm? Okay. You want me? Nobody's interested in me. Everybody wants me to do something for them. <laughs> you want me? Come on in. Hmm? He's opening his arms, something like that. So he showed him in no uncertain terms. There it says, Apashat Purusham Purnam. Purusham Purnam. They saw him completely. Purnam, the Purusha. Purnam. Jiva Goswami says, like the full moon, hmm, in which all the phases of the moon are contained. Hmm. 
So it means Swami Bhagavan, he saw, that fountain source of Leela that all the avatars are coming from. All the different divine scents. We have the Buddha, the wisdom. We have Christ, the sacrificer, and so forth. He saw Purna, he saw the heart of the Absolute. It's the, the idea of the word Krishna, the heart of the Absolute. God as rasa, as a lover. And so he saw the whole of divinity, if you will. And it means also, Apashat Purusham Purnam. Purnam means, he saw it like the moon, full moon, contains all the phases of the moon in a sense, and it has a halo to it, it has an effulgence. So he saw Bhagwan and his Swarup Shakti. That he means, that means the, the Bhakti, the, the very, that which animates the Absolute. Krishna is, is said hmm, in the pen, by the pen of Krishna Das, great poet, he said what? Radhikar Premera Unmata. Ami Shisha Guru Nata. Radhikar Premera Unmata. Krishna speaking. Oh, I am the disciple, hmm, and Radha is my guru. Hmm. Her dancing is my guru, and. Her preem, her love, drives me mad. Hmm? I'm following in that. Brahman is, the idea is Brahman, the absolute, the Godhead, is everywhere, all pervasive. Of course, we can't see him anywhere, or some people can't. Everywhere. But now the point is, as I made before at other times, if you're everywhere, how can you move? You're already everywhere. So, if that Brahman that is everywhere is moving, that is Leela, what is the power then that makes that, that Leela uh, generates the motion that's, that, that is impossible? In other words, if you're everywhere, how could you move? Hmm? That is what we mean by Radha. That is what we mean by Bhakti. Hmm? So he saw Bhagawan full, means he saw him dancing. Nietzsche's idea, if there was a god, he should be a dancer, right? So Brahman is dancing, Krishna is playing the flute, he's dancing, he has no purpose, nothing to accomplish. Love transcends reason. If he has any purpose, it's to understand how people, how his devotees love him. Explore that, that's very fascinating to him. That's making him move. He's dancing for that. Hmm? It said here, Bhakti Yoga in Amunasi, as I mentioned earlier, he did Bhakti Yoga. Here it's talking about Prem Bhakti, not Sadhana Bhakti, not even Bhava Bhakti. Sadhana Bhakti means like you plant the seed, you have a tree. It's an apple tree. You say, that's an apple tree. There's no apples on it. There's no apple blossoms on it. But it's an apple tree. Hmm? And with proper watering and sunlight, the blossoms will come. When the blossoms come, it's very beautiful. And you feel like something, this is, fruits will be coming. Hmm? So we have bhakti in, in sadhana. Sadhana means practice. It's like you find someone who has bhakti in ecstasy and you become attracted to it. So you want to you follow that. So... 
with your mind and your senses, you try to follow that in some kind of a disciplined way. Hmm? We say, this is a devotee in practice. Hmm? But devotee means love, so you can't practice love, but anyway, you, you can imitate someone who does love and, and do the same things and it will come in you, something like that. So when bhava comes, real emotion comes from the self, from the meditative mind, then it's like the blossoms on the tree. Oh, you know, fruits will be coming. And then prem, fruits are coming. This is bhakti yoga in a manasi, samyak pranahite malay. This is prem, bhakti and prem. He's mature in his realization. And so he is seeing Krishna akarshini. When bhakti is pure, then it has this characteristic. When it's When it's only in its... Practitioner stages, it's very powerful. It has the power to destroy suffering, the suffering of attachment. Hmm? It breaks our attachment for things by way of causing us to be attached to, to God. Hmm? You know, they, people sing those names and so forth, they actually become attached to that and they drive bliss and ecstasy from that. It may not be steady, it comes and goes, but they keep going back to that. This is in sadhana. Hmm? They get some experience and it's like very otherworldly. So they keep coming back and they hear the philosophy and then they keep coming back and they taste and they go in and out, something like this, huh? in practice. Then it comes to consistently in ecstasy and then to prem. So in, in, in sadhana bhakti, what happens? Well, this misery can be ended. That sounds huge. And what is the other one? That uh, Subhada. When he attains, when she attains Ruchi, a real taste for all these things. It means taste for this means no taste for other things, for worldliness. It's lost. It's, 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 uh, there's no desire. Hmm? No desire on this side. A taste for the other side. Ruchi means taste. So that person, in that stage, this is still in bhakti, in practice, that person becomes likable. People like that person. Hmm? He or she doesn't have to make an effort. Shubhada means auspiciousness. There's, there's five different kinds of it, but basic ideas, the person becomes very likable. <laughs> uh, hard to find, you know, have an enemy he can charm, she can charm enemies and so forth, given the opportunity. Then we go into Bhava Bhakti. Bhava Bhakti makes Mukti, salvation, look like undesirable. Hmm? Such a big thing that, that uh, so many people are concerned about. And um, it's something that, it's other qualities, something, you know, this is rarely achieved. Then we go into Prem Bhakti, and his, his Vyasa is in the Prem Bhakti. And what, is his, what are the characteristics of that? Oh, Samdranatma. Shri Krishna Karjani, Sandranat means we could take happiness and concentrate it, hmm? condense it. Hmm. Very condensed ecstasy. And there are symptoms of this. Kampashru Pulagadaya. They may try to check them in the public, but tears coming, like I was talking with uh, Ishan Das, one of my godmothers, hmm? um, and he was telling me that. He was with Prabhupada in uh, our Guru Maharaj in, in London, I think it was. And Prabhupada was in on the altar and he was taking care of the some arrangement. And the, the deity, the mission of his was very small at the time. 
He looked at Krishna and tears poured out of his eyes like a, like a syringe. Hmm. And Ishan was thinking, oh, goodness, such ecstasy. And Krishna Akarshani, this is the main point, that bhakti in Prem conquers Krishna. So it means we are positing here the idea that there's something more than God, if you will, that God pays tribute to, that is bhakti itself, love. Hmm? But that's, I mean, in a wise love, Prem Bhakti. So he becomes, that's the whole idea. When you see Krishna's depicted as having a mother hmm, and she's tying him up because he's going out and stealing butter and so forth, it means that the absolute can come under the control of the devotee. Everyone wants to try to control things, to have some security and so forth. The power of bhakti, you let go of trying to control everything and actually the Godhead comes under your control. Hmm? This is the idea. So here, this, this is what Vyasa is experiencing. This is the, I, the, the implication of the words, Parama Purushe. Hmm. He saw Krishna, in other words. This, this is the depiction of the Godhead in Hinduism. Conquered by love. The Absolute has been conquered by love. Hmm. Therefore you have the picture of the Krishna's coward friend is wrestling him to the ground. Like young boys will be friends and they'll wrestle with one another. And the devotee is winning. Hmm. And Krishna means Godhead, but in in such a position that he's forgotten that he's God. The knowledge that he is God is forgotten by the force, the power of the devotee's love in Prem. So Vyasa is witnessing this kind of thing, this kind of Leela. Hmm? He's coming out of that. He sees, for a moment to write, he sees the Parama Purusha means Krishna. With the Surup Shakti. The Surup Shakti means that the energy that that drives bhakti. It's the essence. Bhakti is the essence of this uh, internal, if you will, um, power, potency, shakti. Hmm? And Maya Chatar Apashrayam, he says. And he also saw another shakti, the Maya Shakti. Maya Chatar Apashrayam. At a little distance. That means there's a shakti that. It causes enlightenment, illumination, illumination, and one that is like like the shadow, if you will, of the light. It causes illusion. Yoga Maya, Maha Maya, Maya. Maya means that which is not. Maya means to measure. We want to measure everything. That means you to mean to control it. You cannot. That is illusion. So he saw both the 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 illuminating shakti that is bhakti and the deluding shakti of Bhagawan. Hmm? So he the point here is in a very general sense, he's seeing some variety. Hmm? He's seeing Bhagawan and Shaktis, two things, like fire has heat and light. Heat and light aren't separate from the fire, but you can kind of talk about it. So he's seeing Bhagawan and his Shaktis. Now, we won't talk about it tonight, because we'll close here, but in the next verse, then he'll speak about another Shakti, a third Shakti, that we are constituted of, Jiva Shakti. Hmm? And how we can either come under one power of deluding influence or the enlightening influence. And that'll be like the difference between the night and the day in our eternal 
sojourn. So this is a small, short, uh, not too short, but lesson from the Bhagwat ongoing. Any questions? Yes. Um, so love is known as like a vulnerable position and kind of a scary place and people say, you know, they take the plunge or whatever. And we, um, even recently we had a friend say, I, who wants to be a gopi? I don't want to go there and dismiss Krishna all the time. It sounds terrible. <laughs> so how do you over, how do you make that jump into bhakti and overcome that fear? Because, you know, you don't love something and you don't have it to lose. Nothing risks, nothing gains. I think that the answer to your question really is that um, by associating with people who have really firm standing on that side, it's very compelling. And then it's not directly your experience, but it's indirectly your experience that such thing is possible, exists. I want that. Um, so you, you try there with the emphasis always there for having good association with saintly persons and so forth. They, we see in them they're standing on firm ground there. They, they not only by speech and theoretical knowledge, but we can experience that they have real experience, and their ability to speak will also and have power through speaking will depend upon having standing in what they are speaking about. So th- I think that that really is is the key to um, making the, the jump, so to speak, because it doesn't seem very far then. It seems like, well, it's right here, and I, I like it. Hmm. It's like, uh, it's, it's, it's accessible. So saintly persons, uh, of course, you know, you have to, then you might think, well, yeah, but do they exist, right? Hmm. There are so many counterfeits, but and that's true, but uh, there can only be a counterfeit of something that actually exists, so we should look for that. I think that's a simple answer. Mm. Then again, even in the context of having good association, having made a, a leap, so to speak, you still are asked to go deeper, and then you're hesitating. But then what happens is, as you have experience, then it's so much, you know, little experience, then you, you can go for a long ways. You can invest that much more. It's so confirming. We can confirm in our head, so to speak, with philosophy and so forth, but by our practice, and if our practice is well in, well informed, we practice, we'll get taste, we'll get experience, and then, and, you know, you won't have the full experience, but that'll drive you further. Yes, Marianne. Um, a little clarification, I guess, maybe because I think a little different. Sure. River 
So you, so you want to say there is that stillness, but mm. in, within the stillness there is still fluidness. We agree with that. That's kind of the point we're making because oh, some okay. people say, well, if God is everywhere, how can he move? But we say, no, he can move. There is movement. Hmm? Let's say, you know, there's. I would say it like this. If you're satisfied, why move? Okay. But if I'm really satisfied, then I get up and want to celebrate it. So, I might move because I I need something, I want something, I'm not satisfied. But if I'm fully satisfied, there's no reason to move. But then, if we look deeply at what it means to be fully satisfied, and I have reason to move, and that is to celebrate how 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 full I am. So, that's a kind of a, a effortless, uh, purposeless movement and uh, a dance of existence, which I think is kind of what you're talking about. It is in motion. Reality is in motion even though it's everywhere, right? Well, I think even in stillness, there is... Yeah. Fluidness. Well, there, that's what I'm saying. Fluidness. As static as you become, as, as dynamic as you become. <laughs> Appreciate that. What else? Any other points? Yes, Tristan. I was thinking a lot of things, but um, what really came to mind was this, um, in the materialistic understanding, or the coming from the... From the Sam Harris point of view or the, uh, the, the mental point of view we talk about shutting down the mind and it's so cold and calculated that the alternative in bhakti is opening up the heart mm-hmm. so that opening up the heart is, it, it's, like, it's like light bursting into a room and shutting down is so much like trying to keep something from going out of control mm-hmm. So if we can practice so we can let light burst into the room, there's no, we don't have to be in control. We just have to be there. Yes, nicely put. The, um, it said here that Vyasa's mind became still, but, but it was, as we said, also moving at the same time. So it is, in, in the context of bhakti here, as a as a yoga, you're right. This, it, in other words, in for, say for example, in the yoga sutras, the idea is chitta vritti nirodha. You stop the mind from shut down the mind and so forth. But in bhakti, it's more like bhakti vritti. You want the vritti or the wave of bhakti to come on the mind, love and and and, and there's movement and so forth and so forth. So you you kind of like shut down the mind from thinking in one way by opening the heart to other possibilities. Hmm. So, yeah, it's very very user-friendly. Yes, I'm sorry, question? Well, I was just thinking about that plunge that was talked about earlier. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, I mean, I guess someone could cautiously and gradually go to the edge and, and look and maybe go in, but... Is, is there a necessity eventually to take plunges and, or is this combination? Or? You know what I'm saying? Well, I, well, I mean, uh, do you get somewhere by gradually going on or do you eventually come to a point where you okay, jump? And then, and then you I'll slip know. off the edge. <laughs> well, you... Or, or maybe you're yanked in. 
Yeah, you gotta you gotta plunge a little bit. <laughs> Something like that. It might feel cold at first, you might want to get out, but it's wet. <laughs> Gradually you become acclimated. No, I think that uh yeah, you you uh you want to practice in such a way that you get that you you you, you have some um, organize your life in such a way that it affords you experience, taste, and um, that's the, the driving force. And then that uh, gives you the kind of strength and enthusiasm and encouragement to deepen your your practice, which will deepen your experience. And um, I think that also that spiritual life comes to us kind of in installments in a way and in that... Um, that um, there's always kind of a line drawn to, you know, go here and it's take another step and it always looks like kind of a step into the unknown. And uh, there's some known thing that I'm holding on to, but if you really analyze it carefully, see what I'm holding on to is, is something I can't hold on to anyway, so I should let it go. So it becomes revealed to us in a sense where I'm stuck, where I'm holding on, and then I should go forward there. And at, time, at that point, and at time... You know, you've done that enough times that that when the opportunity comes again, there's no hesitation. Hmm. At first, there may be hesitation, but as you go forward, you find, hey, well, it's, it worked. And I, so I, I thought if I didn't have this and that and so forth, it wouldn't work. And I see it's working better without and and so on. So it'll always be a challenge hmm, at different levels to go forward. After a certain point, there'll be no hesitation. Could, could we say that uh, we are holding on to that which is unreal? Holding on to what? To that which is unreal, afraid of the reality, and, and yeah. we let yeah. go of the unreal, and then the reality is there. That's right. I guess there comes a point when we see something and we see what's holding us back, and we we got to go. That's right. Then you're running after a while. Yeah. All right, we'll stop there. Contrast, Srimad Bhagavatam, Pijan.